We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I invite you to turn back to the passage we read together just a few moments ago, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we continue our journey together this morning. We're specifically in verses 15, 16, and 17 together. It is amazing how God works things out. Um, as we decided to walk through this incredible Bible book together, and we put our preaching plan together, and we put it on the schedule together, um, looked up weeks ago and, and realized that this passage was scheduled for this week, and it is not by accident, fate, coincidence, chance, or luck that the Lord works things out. In this particular passage, what you're going to see that we read together and are going to read in just a few moments, the words thankfulness, thankful, and gratitude all come up in these three little verses as we're talking about what it looks like to have a thankful life. So let's just put it out there and ask the question right off. Would you consider yourself a thankful person? Would you consider yourself someone who is filled with gratitude? You know, it's commanded in Scripture um, from the very beginning to the very end that we're to be thankful people. But I think if a lot of us were honest, even if we are thankful, we probably take a lot more for granted than maybe we realize. Maybe if we're completely honest, we recognize that far too often uh, thankfulness may not be what characterizes us like it should. In fact, most of us um, have blessings that are taking place, and we'll see today every second of every day that we may not even be thankful for because we aren't even aware of. But what we do know is that research, independent of Scripture, independent of theologians, research tells us that one of the greatest things you can do for your life is to improve your thankfulness. If you become a grateful person, evidently research shows that it will change your entire life. I'm not just talking about your psychology. I'm actually talking about your physical health can be affected by the level of thanksgiving in your life, by the level of gratefulness in your life. I found this fascinating. Listen to this. People, that when they research this, People that were grateful, they found this out. Across the board, people who were thankful, grateful people had more energy, they were more optimistic, they had better social connections, they rated themselves as happier, they were less likely to be depressed, they were less likely to suffer from envy, they were less likely to be greedy, they were less likely to be alcoholics, they were more likely to earn more money. They were more likely to sleep more soundly. They were more likely to exercise more regularly. And they had greater resistance to viral infections. Is it any wonder that the Lord knows that thankfulness is good for you? And some of you are thinking, well, that sounds like adult issues. Well, they went a little further and wanted to find out what would it mean for children or adolescents, teenagers? What, what, what would it mean for a kid if they surveyed children to find out how does thankfulness, how does gratitude affect a kid? How does that affect you? So if you're in the service today and you're in the fourth grade or you're in the 11th grade, you say, I mean, would that really matter? Here's how much it matters. Watch this. They found that a, a child or an adolescent that is, tends to be thankful or more grateful is less materialistic, they get better grades, 
they set higher goals, they complain of fewer headaches, and they have less stomach aches, they feel more satisfied with their friends, they like their family better, and they rate their schools higher. It's amazing that it changes our perspective on absolutely everything. So this is more than just a holiday that we're celebrating this week. We are ushering in what ought to be a state of mind and a state of soul. And you know that as we've been walking through Colossians, last week in particular, we talked about how our righteous identity should produce righteous behavior. Well, part of that righteous behavior that's called to produce as we continue in this series together is that thanksgiving should rule the hearts of those people who are truly committed to Jesus. So let's figure out how thanksgiving rules our heart by standing together and reading Colossians chapter 3. Again, we'll read in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, teach us today that thanksgiving should rule the heart of those of us who are truly committed to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're being seated and as you look towards the screen, you'll see that is our big idea this morning, that thanksgiving rules the heart of those who are truly committed to Jesus. So, so let's walk through the passage that we've now read together twice. Let's walk through this passage and see the three ways that thanksgiving ought to rule the heart of those who are committed to Jesus. Number one, as you're taking notes this morning, verse 15, a thankful heart is ruled by peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. How many people do you know, maybe including the one wearing your clothes, how many people do you know that are looking for peace? We hear about peace all the time. We hear about it from a military sense, peace in the Middle East. We hear about people who aren't at peace. We hear about marriages that aren't at peace. We hear about wanting peace in our community and peace in our schools and peace in our churches. And people everywhere are looking for peace. So when we say that we have a peace that surpasses all understanding, what is it that we're really talking about? Well, we know that Jesus said very directly, John 14, 27, you remember this verse, he said, my peace I leave to you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives it. So we know that the peace that we have with God and the peace that we celebrate is not this groovy peace that would be on the back of a VW bug in rainbow colors or people walking around holding up a sign. What does it mean to really have peace with God? It means that at one point in your life before you were saved, and if you're not saved now, this is true of you, you were at war with God because you were alienated from God, and it was because of who you are, dead in your trespasses and sins. But because of Jesus, because of the blood applied that we sang about today, what you know is that Romans 5.1 tells you that now you have a peace with God. It means that you are no longer at war with Him, 
So objectively, we have that peace. So once I know objectively, because of what Jesus has done, I have a peace with God, a peace that Jesus promised that's now in my life. Now we have to let that peace rule. Did you see that word? That word rule, it, is, it, it, it could actually be translated really well. Let the peace of God umpire your hearts. Now an umpire obviously decides um, not only strikes and balls, but if, if someone is out, the umpire means that that is now going to be the deciding factor in my life. So to make that real simple, when we talk about decisions, people are always asking the question, I just wish I could get some leadership on what to do. I wish I could get some wisdom. I wish I could get some insight. I wish I knew what to do in this relationship. I wish I knew what to do with this decision. Here should be the fundamental question if the peace of God is going to umpire or rule your life. Will whatever I'm about to do make my relationship with God better or worse? And if you know going into a decision that it is not going to further your relationship with the Lord or if it's going to put you at odds with God, then only a fool's errand would be to make the choice to decrease the peace that you have with the Lord. And you can apply that to every single avenue of your life. From the very simplest things, and I hear people sometimes say, well, you know, I just don't feel like I have any peace. Most of the time you can say, well, let's talk about the decisions that you've made in your life over the past weeks or months, or maybe even the past couple of years. And sometimes you don't want to be... I mean, you don't want to be mean, but you want to look at people and say, why would you have any peace in your life? Every decision you've made is to put yourself at war with a holy God. And every decision you made, even sometimes, I'm not talking about just the heinous ones, about whether or not you should or should not commit a crime or a heinous sin. That's obvious. I'm talking about even the more subtle things in your life that you back up and say, is this going to further my relationship with God? Is this going to be something that helps me or is this going to be something that hurts me? You can't expect to have peace in your life if the way you are living is consciously deciding to put you at war with the Holy One. So that's number one. A thankful heart always is ruled by peace. Number two. Number two. A thankful heart is also ruled by the Word and by worship. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And then we're going to talk about the second part of the verse in just a moment. But let's first talk about what it means to allow ourselves, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and as we admonish each other. When it says the word of Christ, it's talking about the Bible. It's talking about the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. Do you remember what Paul called in chapter 2? You, you may have to flip back or, or you may remember this. We walked through it. He talked about the wisdom of the world and he warned you. He said, do not let yourself be taken captive by what? Hollow and deceptive philosophies which the world offers so in the in your life you are going to be offered hollow and deceptive philosophies chapter 2 or you are going to be offered the word of christ to dwell in richly paul's point is is that you are to avoid this and you are to embrace this in such a way that he uses the word dwell 
Now, that's an interesting word to talk about the Bible because he doesn't say you ought to listen to it. He doesn't even say you ought to read it. He doesn't even say you ought to study it. He says you ought to live in it, dwell. That, that's the same word that if you talked about how, how you live in your home, I dwell in my home. I dwell in the Word of Christ. That means that it's not about checking off a box or getting my Bible reading plan done for the day. It is about truly living in it in such a way that I am saturated by the Word of God, that I'm surrounded by the Word of God, that not only am I studying the Word of God, but I'm thinking about the Word of God. And the things that I did read in the Word of God, those are coming to my mind's attention all of the time in my life. I'm thinking about it because one of the ways I let the peace of God umpire my life is that I've dwelled richly in the Word of God. So when I wonder, is this going to add peace or is this going to subtract peace? I've dwelled in the Word enough that I clearly know the answer to that because it's where I reside. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about the Word of God, we know that it adds clarity it adds simplicity to our life. It adds direction. We all need that. And it's one of the reasons why from time to time I had an interesting conversation several weeks ago with someone who lives a long way from, from here. They don't, they don't live in our area, don't attend our church physically. But they listen to our church every single week. And it blew my mind because they actually reached out to me and they said, I figured out what that is you do on Sundays. I said, well, good, because I've been doing it 20 years, and I'm still trying to figure out what I do every Sunday, too. They said, no, no, no. You do something, and they said, is it called, uh, is it called expo something? It's some kind of expo preaching you do. And I said, it's called expository preaching. And they said, I've never seen that before. They said, I can't quit watching. She's, and this woman said, I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. You just take the Bible and we walk through the Bible and then when you finish one book we go to another you, you go to another part and we walk through it and the reason I believe in that wholeheartedly is not just in my own personal Bible study but in teaching you is that we absolutely have to let the word of God dwell in us and the way that we do that is it's not hodgepodge every one of you have taken the Bible at some point in your life and you've gone oh Lord show me what you want me to know for the day you done this hadn't you some of you did it this week. You're like, he's about to insult that. Yes, I am. You've been saved too long to do that. Then you open it up to Leviticus and they're talking about bloodletting animals or you open up to a genealogy and you're trying to find some mystical reason for why the Lord led you there. Have a plan when you read your Bible. Start with a book of the Bible. Either start at the beginning of the Bible or start with a gospel. Start one of Paul's letters. Read through it. And as you read through it, you study it and you allow it to dwell in you over time. You say, well, I don't understand it all. Quit focusing on what you don't understand and focus on what you do understand. And the Lord, Word of God will dwell in you richly. And what you will find out, not over just days or weeks, but months and years, all of a sudden you'll start understanding even more than you did before. Let's say today you're at 60-40 of what you understand. I think you're better off than that. But let's just say you are. That's 60% that you're understanding that if you don't dwell in it, that you won't. And I guarantee you, if you keep reading, you'll be at 70 and 80 and 90. Maybe you never get to 100. But if you dwell in what it is that God has led you to, it not only leads to thanksgiving, the Bible says, but it leads to a heart ruled of pre, uh, 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 heart of peace, and it will amaze you 
that if you don't just read it to check something off, if you really, really commit yourself, ask for the Holy Spirit's help and read the Bible, it will amaze you how much more you will want to read it if you are actually dwelling in it, meaning you are applying it to your life. You are actually trying to figure out how to live out this Word. And you already know that because if you take other things, I, I don't know what all of you like. Everybody in here, it's amazing how many different hobbies are in here. I, I love asking people about the different things they enjoy because it's fascinating to me. Um, I enjoy fishing. I enjoy hunting. There's a, I, I've got a, I got a lot of things that I enjoy doing. But what I've noticed in my life is if I have been fishing more regularly, if I've been fishing recently, I read more fishing articles than when I haven't been. Why? Because I am interested in it. I'm engaged in it. I've got questions about it. I want to find something out. So I read more. Same thing could go with hunting. The same thing could go with exercise. It's amazing that whatever it is you like, you tend to read, study more of it when you're actually doing that activity, right? If you actually obey the Bible, you'll want to read the Bible more. If you listen to the Bible and do what it says and it dwells in you richly, all of a sudden, it's like anything else. All of a sudden, you want more of that. The Word of God dwelling in you, and I don't want you to miss this point. If you're, you're listening today and, and you're struggling a little bit and you say, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. Okay, don't miss this. Look at me and listen. Really, this is important. When Paul talks about the Word richly dwelling in you, that is absolutely identical to being filled with the Spirit. Follow me on this. You cannot be Spirit-filled unless you are Word-filled. There are too many people who are perpetuating a lie that it is possible to be filled with the Spirit of God when the Spirit of God inspired the Word of God and the greatest command we have is to read, to study, and dwell in the Word of God. But if I am dwelling in the Word and filled with the Word, the Word of God is the handle that the Holy Spirit grabs onto to turn in your life. It is not some magical seance in which you look for the Holy Spirit to lead God and direct you when you haven't dwelled in the Word of God. If you want to be Spirit-filled, be Word-centered. If you want to be Spirit-filled, dwell in the Word. If you want to be Spirit-filled, put yourself under biblical preaching. Read the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And you will realize very quickly that's what it looks like someone who is Spirit-filled filled in their life we aren't looking for magical incantations we're looking to dedication to the word of god and when that takes place the holy spirit fills a life you say i keep hearing that i've heard that all my life some of you are like every time we go to church camp it's like read your bible read your bible read your bible and then we grow up and we're told Bible plans and we've got a new Bible plan launching to read through the Bible in a year that's going to come up here in January. And we talk about it in small groups and we, it's like we hammer it. So, so I just want to share with you, if you're wondering if it makes a difference, listen to this. I think this is staggering. If you really wonder whether the Bible makes a difference, here's what kind of difference it makes. Someone who engages the Bible four days or more a week. Four days or more a week, you engage the Bible. 
you are 228% more likely to share your faith. You are 231% more likely to disciple someone. You're 60% less likely to feel spiritually stagnant. You're 59% less likely to view pornography. You're 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. You're 31% less likely to struggle with forgiving someone. And you're 416% more likely to be a good steward with your money. That's unbelievable. You say, man, that sounds like being spirit-filled. It does, doesn't it? It does. It sounds a lot like that because it radically changes your life. But notice that we talked about the Word of Christ and then we immediately, it talks about from moving to admonishing each other with the Word of God as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude. There's that word in our hearts to God. Now, that's real simple. simple. What are the psalms? They're the 150 actual psalms in the Bible. That's what he's talking about. As you sing psalms, I think one of the greatest movements in modern music is getting back to singing the psalms. We actually sang part of a song today when we sang Psalm 100 as we enter in it's how we enter to his courts with praise that's from Psalm 100 we sing the psalms that's one thing we're supposed to do hymns hymns are musical compositions other compositions that that people write to praise the Lord (coughs) excuse me and then spiritual songs those are freer forms of songs songs uh so there he's basically saying that we are going to praise the Lord with different types of music. That we're going to realize that music is absolutely essential. That it is an outward manifestation of the peace we've already talked about that's in our heart. So if you have peace in your heart, what should you have? Praise on your lips. Peace in the heart equals praise on the lips. Now, this is coming from someone who has the musical ability of a possum. I've never claimed to it, but guess what? I am positive that I'm at peace with God because I've been justified and saved. And I'm positive He's put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. I'm positive that there are times in my life that I can't help but sing. I'm thankful in my life that I do know psalms to sing and hymns to sing and other spiritual songs to sing. And I'm thankful for that because sometimes it ought to be in your life that because you are spirit-filled, because you are word-filled, that you're also filled with the songs of God that bubble up in you and they manifest themselves in the way that we sing. There has never been a revival in the last 2,000 years that music didn't flow forth once the Word was preached and people began to dwell richly in the Word, immediately music began to be sung more. Songs began to be written. So I want you to know this about music. Some of you right now are thinking, well, I like this kind of music or I like this kind of music. Great. That's great. All music is worship music. Now, before you make that little face at me like some of you you just made, let me explain something to you. All music is worship music. The only thing that changes is the object of worship. 
So if all music is worship music, but when I'm talking about these hymns and songs, spiritual songs that we sing in our heart to God, what we know then is that true worship music needs to be God-centered. It needs to be God-focused. It needs to be absolutely essential that we understand the importance of that. So we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, do you sing? I didn't ask you, do you sing well? I've sat by some of you. I know the answer. Just do you sing? Do you sing? Some of you are like, well, that's for the choir, or that's for Bradley, or that's for like the all-stars that are on the front up here. That's for you. And that's for me. There's a song that God places in our heart, and I'm not talking about just Sunday mornings. I'm talking about that when He places a hymn of praise. And if you do sing, what do I mean when I sing? Do I focus when I sing? Do I concentrate on what I sing? It's important for us here, and we've made some very conscious decisions that there are certain songs we do not sing here. Now, that's not because of worship style. We do a lot of different styles here. Some of it's very traditional. Some of it's more upbeat. Some of it has, quote-unquote, a more contemporary flair. That's not what it's about. Some of the sources of places we have cut out that we don't sing anymore because we believe it's from poisoned wells. I believe Bethel music is a poisoned well. We don't sing from there. I believe elevation music is a poisoned well. We don't sing from there. I believe very, very clearly that, is that, that we need to be careful of what we choose. But once we have chosen well, I think that we need to, then once we have chosen, we need to be sure that we commit to that with all of our heart. You know, it's amazing what music does in our lives. It's amazing how it sticks to our bones. New York Times article actually came out a while back. I thought this was fascinating. And the question they asked was, why can't I forget the Gilligan's Island theme song? Even, even if you never watched that show but a couple of times, when I said it right now, you're like, oh, I've got to, please, Bradley, get up and sing something else so I can quit thinking about Gilligan's Island. But it sticks inside, it sticks inside your heart, sticks inside your mind. Any of you ever been around preschoolers before? Second, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds? Can you imagine trying to teach a three-year-old their ABCs without the alphabet song? 26 independent letters. If you did not set them to music, I bet a lot of you would still never know your alphabet. Because some of you right now, if I said say your ABCs, you would get up here and it would be, you could do it A, B, C, D, but eventually... A, B, C, and you'd almost break into song without even meaning to, right? I, I, I'll give you one. How many of you know the Pledge of Allegiance? I'm about, to, I'm about to mess you up. I'm just telling you, I'm about to mess you up, all right? How many of you know the song, Old MacDonald Had a Farm? That. Anybody want to do that one for us? Just get up and do Old MacDonald? And somebody will say yes, never mind. Now I want you to take the Pledge of Allegiance. Ready for this? And I want you to set it now to Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Some of you. Okay. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Right. All right. You got it? Now I want you to go through that twice. Twice. 
This is how music sticks. Watch this. The next time you say the Pledge of, Amer the Pledge of Allegiance, you will have difficulty saying it without setting it now to Old MacDonald had a farm. And somebody's going to ask one of you at school to lead the Pledge of Allegiance. And you're going to get up, and I hope I'm there when you sing Old MacDonald had a farm to the, to the Pledge of Allegiance. You say, what does that have anything to do with anything? It has everything to do with it. Do you not think that God, if a three-year-old can learn 26 letters to the alphabet and it sticks in their brain, if you can't forget the Gilligan's Island theme song, if even right now you're trying to forget ever saying the Pledge of Allegiance set to Old MacDonald Had a Farm, it proves to you that there is innate capacity that's placed inside the heart where music is absolutely essential to who we are. It's essential to praise. So... We know that the, the Lord has told us a thankful heart is not only ruled by the Word, but it's also ruled by musical worship as well. And then number three, a thankful heart is ruled by the desiring of Jesus' glory in everything. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the simplest yet most comprehensive command in all of the Bible. Whether in word or deed, whether in thought or in action, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, everything that we do, we now look and we see it as an act of worship to glorify Him. That it would match the confession of our hearts in every single area, that we would live conscious of Jesus' authority and Jesus' reputation. If you haven't been down lately to the preschool, I mentioned three-year-olds, you ought to walk through. You ought to volunteer to serve down there if you're not, if you have any affinity to that or a gift, because they are an absolute blessing. Um, I love little kids. I love talking to little kids, hanging out, and just hearing the questions that they ask and seeing their zest for life. And probably any of you that have a preschooler at some point today, you're going to go down there and you're going to get them. And I don't know what their project is today. I should have found that out. But they probably are doing a project as we speak. And they are going to finish that project. And some of them are going to look terrible. Glue is going to be all over the sides of it. And some of it, you're not going to be able to tell what it is supposed to be. And they're going to have colored things. And some of it isn't even going to be close to being in the line. And their color choices sometimes are awful. But what are they going to do when they see you? What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to run up to you with their little ugly project. And they're going to say, Mom, Dad, or Grandma, or Granddaddy, look what I did. And then they're probably going to say this. And normally it has to do with the person that picks them up. I made this for you. And then you're stuck with that little ugly piece of art. Because they will look for it. 
They want to know where you put it, why you hadn't framed it, why it, and, and you, you, they want it on the refrigerator, they want it up in the board, and you're trying to hide it and forget about it and hope that they mature in their artistic ability, but they won't let you forget because they did it for you and they're proud of it and they gave it to you. And I, I thought about that this week. But because if you understand that, you really understand that's, that's who we all were as children. And really, that's a lot like what our lives are supposed to look like right here and right now as we do everything for the glory of Jesus. That we literally take it and say, I did this for you. And I want you to know that when God looks down at your best efforts, that if He's judging you on your ability and talent, that it's probably worse than the worst preschool project that's ever been handed unto the Lord. But do you know what I know about a lot of you? If anybody else looked at your kids' stuff, they'd say, that is terrible. But because it's your kids, you love it. And if it's your grandkids, you really love it. Right? And I'm so glad that what I do in word or deed, when I say, Lord Jesus, I did this for you, that he's not judging it on my talent. He's not even judging my ability. But he's looking at my heart. And he's looking at a child that wants to do something for his heavenly father. And it would bring him honor and glory. So I think that when we understand what that looks like in our lives, it brings us back to our main premise. That thanksgiving rules the heart of those who are truly committed to Jesus. I read this week, I didn't know this, that we take approximately 23,000 breaths every day. I don't remember the last time I ever stopped and said, thank you for letting me have that one. But I thought about it this week as I was thinking about you and thinking about what Thanksgiving looks like. I want to be a thankful person, and in some ways I, I think I am, but I got a long way to go. And my guess is so do you. But if I were to ask you today, what are you the most thankful for? Most of the times, maybe some of your Thanksgiving celebrations, we sit around and say, what are you thankful for? And a lot of times we'll talk about, well, I'm most thankful for my family or I'm thankful for my health or thankful for specific things. What I want you to know is that if I had one thing to be th thankful for, it would be this. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied.